Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. You have to have something new to hope for. Sure, you might still keep hoping that somebody with a terminal illness might get better, and indeed they do sometimes. Or you might hope, as after 9-11, that somebody might be found who was in the trade towers when they fell down. And in fact, a few people were found in another country or in a psychiatric ward and not being able to remember who they were. But for the most part, you can you keep hoping and and you move forward with it with life in a new way without that missing person. You must do both. You cannot just hope because that means you're mobilized, you're frozen in place and the children will suffer, the family will suffer, you will suffer. It has to be both and. So says Dr. Pauline Boss, Emeritus Professor at University of Minnesota and world-renowned as a pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress management, as well as for her groundbreaking research on what is now known as the theory of ambiguous loss. Dr. Boss coined the term ambiguous loss in the 1970s to describe a very particular type of loss that defies resolution, blocks coping and meaning-making, and freezes the process of grieving. With death, she says, there's official certification of loss, proof of the transformation from life to death, and support for mourners through community rituals and gatherings. In ambiguous loss, none of these markers exist, the lingering murkiness leaving individuals unnerved and stressed out. In her 40 years of clinical experience as a family therapist, Dr. Boss has worked with individuals, couples, and families dealing with some kind of ambiguous loss. 
from families in New York post 9-11 who are experiencing the physical kind of ambiguous loss to those dealing with the psychological ambiguous losses of a parent with Alzheimer's disease, a loved one with an addiction, or someone who is changing as a result of aging or transitioning. Drawing on research and her immense cache of clinical experience, Dr. Boss has developed six guiding principles for building the resilience to both bear the trauma of ambiguous loss and to move forward and live well, despite experiencing a loss with no certainty or resolution. She joins me today to discuss this often unrecognized but ubiquitous type, particularly as it relates to closure, the subject of her most recent book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. Our conversation touches on our collective grieving following the pandemic and our country's awakening to the concept of systemic racism, how we can begin to increase our tolerance for ambiguity, and the importance of discovering new hope in the face of grief that has no end. Our search, she tells us, must not be for the elusive concept of closure, but rather for a sense of meaning and a new way to move forward. Okay, let's get to our conversation. I had heard of the term ambiguous loss, but I didn't know I didn't know who coined it. So I was so happy to I first saw your the piece on you in the Times. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Yeah. By Meg Bernard. Yes. Yes. That was a wonderful piece. Bless and her heart. She uh, made it possible to sell out the the first printing in 2 weeks. I'm not surprised. It was so such an incredibly so many people sent that to me. I feel like it's always a resonant topic, but not until you're in the situation, which I'm sure is not one of the frustrations of your life's work. But in a way, you're you're trying to prepare people for this, <laughs> the inevitable reality of life, which is loss, and no one really grapples with it until it happens. Right? And both kinds of loss. And most of the grief experts talk about types of grief, but nobody has talked about types of loss. And so that I started doing that in the 1970s when I was working with the families of the soldiers missing in action in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. And so those families had what I called an ambiguous loss. They didn't know if their loved one was dead or alive, and they had no facts concerning uh, his whereabouts. It was all guys at that time. And so I came up with the term ambiguous loss in the early 1970s. And then during the 80s, I studied families where someone had Alzheimer's disease and realized there were two types of ambiguous loss. Uh, The first type being physical, such as the soldiers missing in action. And the second type being families where someone has dementia, Alzheimer's or the other over 80 kinds of conditions or illnesses that cause dementia. So it is very, very common these days. And so the person with dementia is physically there in front of you, but psychologically absent. And frequently, as it goes on, may not even know who you are. So those two kinds of ambiguous loss, physical and psychological, are much more common than we think. And while the theory of ambiguous loss is quite inclusive, you can therefore plug in all kinds of different situations in human relationships that fit. The most recent research is being done with families 
of young people who are transitioning mm. gender. The person who's the adult who's transitioning doesn't feel like they have a loss. In fact, they feel like they have a gain. But the families and friends who knew them in the previous gender have asked to use the ambiguous loss framework or, or just use it. The researchers use the ambiguous loss framework to study the impact on the family and what they can do about it. Mm. Yeah, I think it's so, as you mentioned, it's inclusive. It feels like such an expansive framework. And I loved sort of how you opened the myth of closure with exactly that. Anderson Cooper talking about how closure itself is a made up media world word and that no such thing really exists. But there are so many losses that people experience all the time. Miscarriage, addiction. Stillborn. Yeah. Stillborn. That Infertility as well, by the way, because you're expecting to have something happen and and your body doesn't make it happen or the circumstances don't make it happen. So you have an ambiguous loss there. There's research done on all three of those, stillborn, miscarriage, and infertility using the ambiguous loss framework. By the way, I don't do this research. I'm a theory builder and other people have carried on the research. I did the research in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, but now I'm 87 years old, and I pretty much mentor other people <laughs> and enjoy a second and third generation doing the work. No, but it's amazing that just to even sort of give people language, I mean, you hear that all the time when people, I'm trying to think of a good example, but sometimes someone will have an experience. And then when you can say, actually, there's a name for that, there's a category of that, your experience is shared, it, it is a thing. That in of itself feels like it must provide some relief. You're right on. And it, this comes out of the stress literature. You can't cope with something unless you have a name for what's wrong. So essentially, what I've done is give a name to something that has been just distressing people for eons. Nobody died. There's no death certificate. There's plenty of support for that. But here you have a condition where there's no greeting card. There's, there are no rituals. There's nothing. And still you know that you feel bad. You feel sad. You may even be grieving and not know it. Of course you would be with somebody who has dementia, even if they're sitting right in front of you or terminal illness, or if they're physically gone. So what, what this theory does is give it a name, and therefore you can start coping with it. But importantly, not with a medical model, not with a medical approach, of a mental illness approach. It, I use a stress-based approach. So you cope with something that is creating ambiguity, and the brain doesn't like ambiguity. We don't like ambiguity in our culture. We're not accustomed to it. Whereas some Eastern cultures might take it more easily. For example, Native Americans handle it more easily too. But those of us who are more mastery oriented in the Western culture type of interaction, we like to be in charge of our own destiny. We don't like ambiguity. And during COVID, during the pandemic, now with war in Eastern Europe, 
with climate change, with racial issues, with all, and with economic issues and disparities, we're surrounded by ambiguity and uncertainty. And it's, it's unnerved us all. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we can put a name to what, what's bothering us, of course, there are specifics. But one of the things we don't name is that the situation is ambiguous and therefore creates a great deal of uncertainty. Yeah. So how do we increase our level of uncertain of uh, our tolerance for ambiguity? How do we increase our tolerance for ambiguity? It's not a popular thing in our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way we do it is to get to know people unlike ourselves, well, you know, who are there, but instead we should go and talk to the people we don't know, get to know people from diverse cultures, travel to unknown places, learn something you never learned before, try something new, do something different. All of these things that when we're distressed, of course, we hunker down and we don't do most of those things. Right. Yeah, totally. No, I'm glad you brought up war because I thought it was also really beautiful, particularly in, in ambiguous loss when you write about your family and immigration and that I don't know if it's less acute now that we have modern means for connecting. I mean, the story about your dad, you having one phone conversation with your grandmother was so beautiful and touching. And obviously, we live in a more connected world now. But we watch what's happening, as you mentioned, in Eastern Europe, we watch sort of mass immigration happening all over the place as people are displaced by war and climate change. And it's interesting to give that that also fits within this framework. Because of the ambiguity and uncertainty, that's a, that's a major stressor for most of us. And yeah. yes, you're absolutely right. It's going on all over the world with migrants and refugees and people who are ill people who don't have the means to even have a telephone and broadband. And so there's still people that are disconnected from one another, sometimes for a lifetime. Yeah, it's interesting in the context of giving things language as well, because, you know, at the beginning of of the myth of closure, you talk about finding meaning, and we'll get to that. I know it's part of your and then I, I kept arguing with you in my head, because I was like, well, sometimes things, the pressure to find meaning of something that can feel very meaningless feels like a negative tendency. And then you went right there and you were like, some things are labeled meaningless. And that also addresses the ambiguity. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? And then it's kind of antidote. Yeah. So what one of the examples I give in the book is that my little brother And I was six years old when he was born. And because my mother had another baby 11 months after that, I was essentially a junior mother to him. So I was very close to him. He played junior high football one Friday night and died of ball bar polio the next Friday night. He had been at Boy Scout camp and picked up the virus of polio. That was the summer before, that was in the 1950s, the summer before the sock vaccine came out. So that situation taught me that some losses remain meaningless. That's meaningless to me. And families that have murders and suicides and so on also tell me 
that their losses are meaningless. There are many, but meaninglessness is a meaning. And what that means is it will never make sense, nor does it have to. But what you do then is find some purpose in that meaningless loss. The purpose will carry you forward if you can't find a meaning in it. And for us, after my little brother died of polio, uh, my whole family went, helped with the March of Dimes effort, going door to door, collecting dimes for the research to provide a vaccine, which came the next year after my little brother died. So we always felt that we helped to prevent other families from having the loss we have had. And you see that all the time in the papers and on uh, TV, where someone has a very meaningless loss that's very difficult, but they still find some purpose in helping other families to avoid having the pain they had. Mm, yeah. And I thought you were writing, this is in the myth of closure. You wrote about Eddie, your brother. You said, after Eddie's death, was I ever happy again? Yes, I have had a wonderful life. But the price we pay for loving others is the pain of loss and grief. It is also the price we pay for living a long life. And I love that because I think having, you know, I think most people are touched by loss or if they haven't, they recognize they will be. But there's, you talk a lot about both and language, which I think is so important because loss can feel irrevocable, unsurvivable, completely debilitating. And then there's often that lingering guilt, right? You know, of everything you've experienced in your life and wondering sort of pacing with Eddie, right, who who didn't live. But I think it's so powerful and important when people provide that perspective. But it's a difficult one for people to reconcile, I think, joy in life when someone they love lost their life. We're trained in this culture to think in binaries. Uh, you're either alive or you're dead. You either win or you lose. You're either good or you're bad. And what I'm talking about is a more nuanced view of loss because it isn't that binary. So you lose someone, you, you both lose someone and you remember them. You know, you both, you both win and lose. You know what I mean? That's life. And so Eddie is gone, but in fact, his photo is right up above my bookshelf right here where I'm sitting. And I think of him periodically. And I think of in the book, I list my friends and who were very dear to me. I just lost my husband during while I was writing the book. And, and so I had to set it aside for a while. In fact, I had to set this book aside before because I, he became quite ill and I had to be a caregiver. So I actually started this book, I think, in 2015. Well, it took a very different turn because of all that happened between then and now. And, and I realized that I had to put some personal anecdotes in it as well. It's, it's almost what I call an academic memoir, more memoir <laughs> than academic. <laughs> And it seemed to me honest at the time because I was grieving as I wrote. And 
writing for me was a way to cope with it. Writing for me was a was in fact my purpose on try, in trying to make sense of not only my husband's loss, but all the others I have had given yeah. my age. Yeah, you have that amazing quote, I think it's Carl Whitaker, about how we can't really make sense of anything until we're past it past or have it. seen, yeah, seen the past whole yes. thing. Yes, I studied with Carl Whitaker at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And if any of you are old enough to have known him, you know that he was uh, irascible and very, he would call himself crazy. But mostly <laughs> he taught me about paradox when he said, uh, for example, you can't get divorced to a seminar at the, at the university. And many of the women in that group at that time had been newly divorced and we got very angry. Uh, over the years, I've come to realize what, what he meant. And he's right. And I think in the book I wrote that I, I see my husband's good looks, and he really, my first husband's good looks, uh, in my children's faces today. And I feel, I feel like he, he, it was a good marriage for a high school sweetheart, and he was a good father to my children. But as time went on, addiction took over, mm -hmm. and, and I had to decide whether or not the children would have one healthy parent. And mm. it had to be me, and I had to go to Al-Anon and do what was necessary. Mm. So the, the husband who just died was my second husband and mm. the love of my life, yes. It was a hard, a hard loss. So that and that, what you described it with your first husband, you would categorize as another type of ambiguous loss, right? Yes, I did. I think divorce is an ambiguous loss. Uh, it's a physical ambiguous loss. That is, you're no longer living together. But especially if you've had children together, your paths cross again. It is psychological absence with uh, it's physical absence with psychological presence. And so divorce can be confusing to some people because uh, it's not a death, uh, nor should it be. And so you have to learn to live with the ambiguity, the ins and outs, uh, presence and absence of a divorced spouse coming in and out of your life. And it's possible to do. So any of your listeners who have done that, they should pat themselves on the back for having the tolerance for an ambiguous loss and, and living well despite it. Adoption is another one that's quite common. And that would be for the mother who gave up a child. Uh, which is very difficult, I think, because not much research attention is paid to that particular group of women. It also involves the children of divorce. And at some point in time, they may want to know who their parent is. And many of them are able to find out and some are not. Some countries have open adoptions for that very reason. And the United States is moving in that direction, but I think they have not gotten there entirely. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a problem. Foster care also is an example of ambiguous loss because foster children become attached to their foster siblings or their foster mothers sometimes, not always. And then they are fostered out at age 18 and not supposed to have any contact with these people, which is a silly rule. I'm sure it has some reason for being, 
but it's very, very hard on the children who are fostered out. Not, not a good idea. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. I want to talk to you about sort of the stages that you put into sort of a six-point star in a way with this idea that, and I loved the conversation about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Freud. We can talk about that maybe in a little bit. But Uh this idea that there is no linear pathway to process loss and that the experience is more of a zigzag, back and forth whirlwind as you move through, you have adjustment. I don't know. I don't even know if there's an order. Find meaning, reconstruct identity, discover new hope, revise attachment, normalize ambivalence, and adjust mastery. So maybe do you, is there an order or do people just start somewhere? I tend to have an order when I describe it, but I make a strong point that I do not believe in linear models uh, or in ordered models. Grief is different and experiencing loss is different for all people. And so I just think these six pillars are very important to deal with, but not in any particular order. For example, finding meaning takes a long time. And so you might start there, or maybe you would start with tempering mastery, adjusting mastery, you know, because we're very angry when we can't control something. 
And, and so if somebody dies suddenly, or if COVID suddenly covers the world, this invisible virus that we couldn't see, we feel very helpless. Even if a loved one suddenly is given the diagnosis of a terminal illness, you feel helpless. So if you already are the kind of person who is very mastery-oriented, I was just talking with surgeons, for example, uh, who are very mastery-oriented, this is very, very difficult for them in their private life. It's difficult for attorneys in their private life. It's difficult for anyone who is accustomed to solutions, to fixing, to mastering a problem. Mm. When you are faced with one, you can't fix immediately or ever. Yeah. So that one comes up. And, and so the antidote is just to acknowledge that you have a desire for control and that you don't have any. Is that typically the process? I mean, I recognize this isn't a checklist and it's a long process, but is that what you coach people to, is just to even recognize that that's the desire? No, I, I would start this way. What you are experiencing is ambiguous loss. It's the most stressful kind of loss there is because it remains unresolved. Mm -hmm. It is not your fault. And that's how I begin in any language in any country around the world. And what they need to know is that while they're very masterful people most of the time, what they're experiencing right now is something they can't master. Oh my gosh, I think of the Ukrainians right now. Or I think of ourselves during the pandemic. We had to shut down and things were not going our way. Young people had to teach their own children in their own household. And unfortunately, so many mothers quit their jobs because of this. So we, we lost being in control, but it wasn't our fault. And it's very important for people to know that what they're feeling isn't their fault. And so often we give it a mental health label, like we say, so many people are now depressed. I would like to challenge that and say, uh, most people now are sad or during, during the height of COVID, I'm talking about. They were sad and they were feeling helpless. Hmm. And that that was a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Yes. And so what people need is support for that rather than medical illness uh, diagnosis. I know. We love to pathologize things that are very natural, even death. Exactly. Yeah. And it's grief has been pathologized too. But now I see anxiety is being pathologized. Frankly, if we didn't feel anxious during these last two years, there might have been something wrong with us because the situation was one that would naturally produce anxiety. Yeah. Think life in general. I was just reading a Joseph Campbell quote, and he mentioned this. Uh, it was like an ancient Chinese curse. May you may you live during an interesting time. That's a curse. And it's like, yeah, we live in. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> and we, we live in really interesting times. So COVID, I mean, all of it, it is, it's been a perpetual onslaught for Decades? I mean, at least a decade, it feels like. But I haven't lived as long as you have. I mean, you've seen a lot. It's not yes. It's not a, an unstressful 
time to be alive. For for me, it reminded me of World War II when I was a preteen. And it was a very anxious time for everyone, uh, you know, gathering around the radio each evening to hear the news and being frightened. My father was an immigrant from Switzerland. And of course, Switzerland was surrounded by Hitler's troops. And that was four years. But basically, I'm an optimist. I think we go through troubled times. And then I think we come out of it stronger. That is, we're more resilient than we think. And if we're still standing after this pandemic, we should give ourselves a pat on the back. <laughs> I, I loved the way you brought that up at the end. You wrote, this historical pattern of turmoil followed by change reminds us that loss begets change and change begets disorder and stress and they beget change again. So yes. it is, it is, and despite these horrible times, and I want to, we'll talk, I want to get through your, um, I want to go through the rest of that list, and then I want to talk okay. about systemic racism because you mentioned that earlier, and I think that's another big part of this and this and ambiguous loss. Reconstruct identity. That's a big one. It turns yeah. out the researchers are finding out that's a big one. Whether we're talking about war-torn countries or terrorism or illness and or more everyday examples, when, for example you are the spouse of someone who has dementia and they no longer know you. Frequently they say things like, am I still a wife? Am mm -hmm. I still a husband? If my spouse no longer knows, yes, you are. It's a both and. Yes, you need to pay attention to your spouse and you need to have a social life. Right. And so go golfing, go out to dinner with other people, have an intimate relationship, but you are also married to this person who no longer knows you. So you should visit periodically, not every day. You need to have a social life because what we found out about caregivers is that they die at a rate 63% higher than their same age group. Mm. So caregiving is dangerous to your health and you have to work hard at maintaining your own health, your own needs, your own social life. So identity is a huge one. Who am I now that this ambiguous loss has happened? What are my roles? For example, if the husband in a family is missing an action, do they just leave the roles that he played unfulfilled? Or do, does the wife start taking over? And in, in my age group, there were gender roles. The men took care of financing and so on, and the women raised the children. But fortunately today, younger couples, younger people have more flexible roles so that filling the unfulfilled roles won't be so hard if someone goes missing, either for health reasons or for distance reasons. Hmm. So identity is important. You need to know who you are and you need to know what roles you play in your particular family or your particular group. And that has to be revised if somebody goes missing in that group. Ambivalence is, uh, I call it normalizing ambivalence, primarily because it's about psychiatric ambivalence is considered uh, diagnosable, but I'm talking about social ambivalence. It's a sociological term meaning that you're ambivalent, you're feeling ambivalent about this person 
because of something that happened in the environment. That is, if you have a loved one who is missing physically or missing psychologically, there are times when you're going to be angry about that. Mm-hmm. And you may even say, I wish it were over. I wish it were over. That means you wish them dead and then you feel guilty. And so I'm normalizing that because I've never spoken to anybody who has had an ambiguous loss, who hasn't had that thought, especially if the loss goes on for a long time. Mm. The main thing is that you not act on it. You recognize it and say, it's normal. I both wish it were over and I'm glad they're still here. So you use the both and thinking again. And then with attachment, Primarily what I'm saying there is there's no closure uh, that the attachment to the person who's lost changes. It cannot immobilize you because that's trouble if it does. And whether it's a clear-cut death or an ambiguous loss that goes on for years, your attachment is different than it was when they were fully present for Mm -hmm. you. And we have to recognize that that transformation. I think I hit them all, did I? Discover new hope, which I thought was a really beautiful one. Yeah. Yes, yes. Now, I had to change that title. In the original 2006 book, it says Discovering Hope. And many people misunderstood that I meant hoping for the missing person to come back hoping for the Alzheimer's to be cured, hoping for the soldier who's missing to come walking out of the jungle. I did not mean that. So the title is now Discovering New Hope. You have to have something new to hope for. Sure, you might still keep hoping that somebody with a terminal illness might get better. And indeed they do sometimes. Or you might hope as after 9-11 that somebody might be found who was in the trade towers when they fell down. And in fact, a few people were found in another country or in a psychiatric ward and not being able to remember who they were. But for the most part, you can you keep hoping and and you move forward with, with life in a new way without that missing person. You must do both. You cannot just hope because that means you're mobilized, you're frozen in place and the children will suffer. The family will suffer. You will suffer Mm -hmm. uh, from that. It has to be both and. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. 
Their unique belittin oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. I liked the questions that you asked to like, what is your life like now without this person? What could you be or do now? What have you always wanted to do but could not? Who were you before this relationship? I think that's really interesting. So I would imagine for people, you know, for example, like you, I'm assuming you were married to your second husband for a really long time. It's hard to remember who you are outside of a... (laughs) 32 years and six years before that. So we were together 38 years. Yeah. And I don't like the new identity of widow. The first time I had to check that box was... I was a bit angry, actually. So I guess I don't mind the word single. I mean, I'm very happy being single. I I have plenty of friends and family around me. But for some reason, widow scratched a bit. It was probably denial of legally, (laughs) that's what I am. But it isn't how I really see myself. I see myself, of course, still remembering him and working hard to create his legacy to, uh, that he deserves. But I am at the same time moving forward, trying mm-hmm. to find a new way to live a, a single life and to travel and to keep going to New York, which I love, and the opera or see friends and, and then go west. I love <laughs> to travel. So I, I yeah. suspect I will keep writing and traveling. And even that language, moving forward, keep going, it's so much more accurate, it seems, than this idea that we have of moving on, closure, like somehow you're just going to put that, put him in a suitcase and stow it in the attic of your mind. It's which just, is, closure is such a bad word. Bad. It is it's a, a perfectly word. good word when it comes to business contracts or closing a real estate deal or closing a road after a snowstorm. That's where closure is a perfectly good word, but it's a terrible word in human relationships. It's cruel, it's mean, and and people who have the death in the family don't like it when you say closure for the most part, as I wrote about Anderson Cooper, who is very wise about that. And after somebody who's had a murder in the family, they may say, well, now the trial 
uh, is over, they convicted the murderer, the family has closure. No, they don't. They have justice. Closure implies finality. You shut the door. It's over. You wipe your hands of the situation. That is not what you do when someone you love or care about dies. Or even when you have something inanimate, like a home that you've lost but loved, or a pet. And you can't just say it's over. It's transformed, though. You have to know that. It's transformed once they don't breathe anymore. And yet you can keep them in your mind and your heart and also at the same time move forward with life in a new way without them. Yeah. It's so interesting, though. I mean, you write about this. There's such a socially, we love to press that on people. I mean, I think it makes us feel tidier, cleaner, like that someone's good, they're done, we don't have to think about it, worry about it. But I think you write like closure for other people is oftentimes as a concept far more important for other people in your life than it is for you. It's not, as you say, it's not a reality. There is no such thing. I think it's because we're a mastery-oriented culture. We do not like suffering. We like winning, not losing. And suffering is viewed as well, I think suffering is part of life. And again, the binary doesn't work there. And we have to witness other people's suffering. We have to not turn our back on it or say, aren't you over it yet? Which we do, by the way, say that all too much. We have to be more patient and witness the suffering of others. And we don't have to say a thing. We just have to be there mm-hmm. uh, and say, can I help you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry is usually the best thing to say. I want to talk about George Floyd and systemic racism and the way that you believe that also is sort of a massive, that there's a massive amount of ambiguous loss in these last four or 500 years. I mean, it makes a tremendous amount of, we talk a lot about the trauma, but you talk about people not, the, the compounding of loss, right? People not being torn away from their families, not having families, not knowing where they came from or who their people are, just as one example, besides the brutality of slavery. How do you, if you were to treat the culture, how would you begin to, is it, is it enough or is the right beginning just saying this is cataclysmic, ambiguous loss that's never been acknowledged? How do you start? Well, I think you're right. We start by naming it. You can't see it. You can't cope with something unless it has a name. You have to know what the problem is before you can begin coping with it. I think I myself didn't know the extent of the problem until I was shut in and then suddenly saw the George Floyd murder on television But in fact, the demonstrations right out my window, I live on the 10th floor, right downtown Minneapolis. So this all took place very near to me, and I could not not see it. Hmm. And, And I think that was true for maybe worldwide, because suddenly people were shut in, maybe having their TV sets on more, and saw this fortunate video that Ardella Fraser took brave girl, brave 17-year-old girl who stood there five feet from the person 
the murderer of George Floyd, who told her to stop, and she did not. And so that video taught us that this is worse than we thought it was. Police brutality is taking place more than we know. And down the line, we learned more that health disparities were broader than we thought, food disparities, more people were living paycheck to paycheck than I ever had realized, even though I did once in my lifetime too. I, I somehow forgot about that. So I think we were brought back to reality. And now there are several things that need to be identified. And if the theory of ambiguous loss can be of help, it will be in giving a name to certain things that have been nameless before. Uh, the cross-generational transmission of trauma from slavery was due to an ambiguous loss way back then when families were sold on the auction block apart from each other. And I think climate change may also be an ambiguous loss. I will leave that up to other researchers to determine and study. But I think giving it a name may bring it into the eyes and ears of policymakers, of people who make big decisions, because we haven't got time not to act on this one. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PTT. 
going back to how as a culture we like mastery and we like to solve problems we like to hit the nail right on the head right it's like right now there are so many things that lack definition and so we don't know how to hit that nail so defining it helps even though it's it's also in a way um we have to get past this desire for mastery and this fear of uncertainty and, and ambiguity. Do you think that that's culture-wide or gendered, or do you see any difference? Well, I have a problem with patriarchy because that implies who the master is. I have great trouble with that. I also think that you need women on equal footing at the table for big and small decisions, because in some sense, if women are at the table, I don't mean to generalize, but they are more likely to have children in mind, the family in mind, because we are connected. We are almost biologically connected in a way that that's how we think, many of us. And if we don't think systemically about the other people around us, the children, the next generation, and our families, if we only think about power and land grabbing and money making, then we have a problem. So it isn't exactly just male, female, but it may, you need to have some research on this but it may lean more to the fact that we need to have more women at the table of major decision-making in order to make this world inhabitable for a long time yet, in order for it to be humane, in order for it to take into account the disparities, that the fact that children should not be raised in poverty. They shouldn't have to in a developed country. And we should care for even the children in a non-developed country. I'm very strong on the fact that you need to have that front and center. I can't understand why people don't see daycare and after-school care and care after you have a baby to stay home and connect with that baby for fathers and mothers. I just think that that's not even negotiable. So that's how I feel the world should be more so. And in a patriarchy, it somehow gets lost. Yeah. And it dare not be lost. Yeah. Well, and I would, I don't, this might be too out there, but when you think about the creation of the patriarchy and the suppression of sort of the goddess culture that was pre existent in, I guess you'd call it old Europe, but this instinctive understanding that that women women were venerated as these as sort of the nature principles the creators of life and death and that's the goddess and then it was replaced you know within patriarchy with this male god at least in the and witchcraft yeah well yeah witchcraft certainly we said we know what happens with that yeah oh. but but you think about too so much of that i think is a fear of death, fear of the cycle of life, fear of nature. And I don't think we'll reorder our relationship to death and loss. Not that it won't, will ever be easier, but until we allow that principle to to reemerge. And I think it's why we have such a horrible relationship with our planet. I think you're right. I agree with you. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) 
The Fear of Death, that, that book, The Denial of Death by Becker, was written so long ago in the 20s, I think. I think it's still with us, the denial of death and the denial of ambiguity, ambiguous loss. I mean, those things have to be faced. And I think we're mature enough now as a country to face them. And there's, it's certainly COVID has taught us something about ambiguity, about mastery not always being there. By the way, I wanted to say, I'm very proud of our mastery orientation in this country because we've cured illnesses and we've, honestly, goodness, put, put a camera into far outer space now yeah. and little helicopters on Mars. I, I love that. I love it. But because we're so mastery oriented, we're not very good with accepting what we can't control. So that's where that tolerance for ambiguity comes in. No, and it's it's that both and I love when you talk about Freud, when you talked about your your book as a memoir, an academic memoir. I can't remember how you described <laughs> it. But when you went into some of the personal writings of these people who have defined psychology or Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who sort of had her five stages of dying co-opted and turned into five stages of grief. I don't think people really realize that. But Freud, who, you know, a lot of us have some problems with Freud as much as many, many great revelations. But when he writes sort of personally, this is so interesting. And and maybe collect, we'll start to see the bridging of this. He writes to a friend who lost a child, Although we know after such a loss, the acute state of mourning will subside, we also know we shall remain inconsolable and will never find a substitute, no matter what may fill the gap. Even if it be filled completely, it nevertheless remains something else. And this is how it should be. It is the only way of perpetuating that love, which we do not want to relinquish. Isn't that wonderful? It's so beautiful. And yet so Freud, right? So like not in mastery of... yeah. Yeah. But then he goes on to, to write about uh, uh, detachment in his academic writings. Yes. So I'm going, to write, I'm going to continue to read Freud's personal writings and Kubler-Ross's personal writings because, and I, I hope I haven't made the same mistake, by the way, from my academic writings to more personal writings, but somehow they come alive in a way that I could not see in their personal writings. Kubler-Ross had Swiss parents like I have had. And as a result, we probably are more orderly and mastery oriented, which is the culture of the Swiss uh, for precision. So she gave five stages of grief. But in her later years, her later books with Kessler, she changed her mind. And she says, it's messy. It's not orderly. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that the five stages of grief were never meant for the, the, the mourner. They were always meant for the person who was dying. But she says, it's not even right here, she said. It's messy. She had strokes starting nine years before she died. And she couldn't walk. And this woman who was very, very independent couldn't walk. Can you imagine? And she hated it. She said she felt like she was on the runway of, for an airstrip and couldn't get off the ground. She wanted to get off the ground and die, but she couldn't. And so acceptance came to her after nine years of anger, maybe a few shortly before she died, her son said. And so 
it doesn't go in the neat orderly way. So I encourage people to forget about her five stages and remember her. She needs to be remembered for having started the worldwide hospice movement. And for that, I will be forever grateful to yeah. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. But forget about her five stages. They were meant for the dying and not even that. Yeah. But it's interesting how we gravitate. We love those lists. We love, we love those lists primarily <laughs> because they come to an end and then we think we're done with it. So they give us an illusion of closure and there isn't a closure. I love that Pauline Boss is giving language to these experiences that really mark all of our lives, but yet have been nebulous, unboundaried, not honored or recognized as real. And I do agree with her that giving them a name at least makes them real or something that can be assessed, processed, considered. And I also love her push against this idea of closure and this idea that it's a mythology that's convenient to so many of us who don't want to think about hard things, but isn't the reality for anyone who's sitting at the center of loss. There is no such thing. And I think collectively, the sooner we can move past that idea that there's a box to check that will be done, it'll be over, we'll never miss the person again, we'll never feel pain. Well, I think we'll be a healthier and ironically happier society once we learn to embrace that sort of ambiguity. I also love how inclusive and expansive the idea is because, and I love, I love that at 87, Pauline Boss wrote about ghosting in her book and that she even knows what that concept is. But we've all had that experience, right? Whether you're dating someone or it's a friendship breakup or it's job loss where you don't have an answer. Nobody's sitting down to explain to you exactly what happened. And even then it would only be one side of truth. So often we have to live with nebulous idea of a version of reality that is just not complete. So I hope that her work touches you and speaks to you in a way that maybe covers off on an experience that you've had in life or gives it a little bit of shape or normalizes it without pathologizing it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.
High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.